people are like, why would your team do Everest? Why would you do these things? And you know, I mean, this is like a mountain that everybody knows. And I think this didn't start out as like a trip about representation, but if you have a team of all black climbers going to climb a mountain, how can you not talk about representation and the fact that like there's only been 10 black people who have summoned it out of thousands upon thousands. In April 2022, a group of climbers will make history as the first all-black team to attempt to summit Mount Everest. Their trek is called the Full Circle Expedition, and Eddie Taylor is one of the participants. Eddie lives in Colorado, and he's pretty entrenched in the climbing community. Before work and on the weekends, Eddie's out scaling rock faces or ice climbing frozen waterfalls. Even though Eddie has done some pretty noteworthy outdoor trips on some of the biggest mountains in the world, He'd never thought much about climbing Everest. That all changed when he met Full Circle Expedition leader Phil Henderson at the dog park. It was in the morning before we were going ice climbing, and I just had to get my puppy some exercise before he was cooped up all day. And we chatted a little bit, and then I saw him here or there over that weekend. And basically, before I left the last day, we ran into him as he was leaving the park, and he asked for my number. And we, a few weeks later, we decided to ski together and I kind of got to know him a lot better then. And then uh, he told me about this Everest trip and initially I wasn't really that interested in it. But basically after that weekend of skiing with him, I decided there was no way I could not be a part of this thing. That's really interesting. Can I ask why you said no initially? So I have a bunch of other things that I'm interested in, in, term, in more in like the rock climbing realm, as well as like, you know, it's a big mountain expedition. Um, it's very resource intensive. It's very pricey for a teacher. I mean, if you look at the average expedition costs, they're they're pretty. It's like fifty to hundred k, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's expensive. I want to talk to you about that because I think that's really intimidating. I mean, there's a lot of things about Everest that are intimidating, but the price tag, I think, is like one of the biggest hindrances. Yeah, I mean, you look at it, right? There's, there's a price tag aspect of it. There's a danger aspect of it, and then there's the physical aspect of it. And so, like, you look at those three things, and it's something that I wasn't looking to do, basically. There were a lot of reasons to say no, but getting to know Phil and hearing more about his goals for the trip convinced Eddie that it was something he wanted to do. Joining Full Circle was an opportunity for Eddie and for other black climbers to create and share their story. That's why the team is bringing a film crew along to document the journey. After years of preparation and fundraising, Eddie plus eight other black climbers and two support staff will start their two-month trip to Everest on April 1st. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Before preparing for this Everest trip, Eddie was an active climber, but he didn't consider himself a professional athlete. Eddie works as a high school chemistry teacher and a track coach. When he's not working, Eddie and his wife, Anna, take any chance they get to go rock climbing or hiking in the mountains near their home outside of Boulder, Colorado. Being athletic and loving the outdoors always came pretty naturally to Eddie. So did you grow up in an outdoorsy family? So I grew up with just my mom. Um, well, I visited my dad in summers in Illinois, but um, I guess... I don't know. We were, I can't really say I came from an outdoorsy family, but just the places we lived, like we lived in the Navajo reservation and we lived in Gallup, New Mexico, which is on the edge of the reservation. Like those are just things that people did there. And so 
and that the things to see were like to go camping on the weekends and go hiking and so that's kind of like we all got into it together i'd say awesome what did your mom do for work uh, my mom was a dentist for the indian health service it's a you know a branch of the government where they work on different reservations and provide health care for um, the different native american populations that's so cool so you grew up on reservations yeah what was that like i've spent a lot of time navigating different spaces i'll say that like in terms of like when i lived in minnesota i was one of two black people in my high school and primarily a white high school and then when i lived in arizona on the navajo reservation there were three people who weren't navajo and so like i mean to the point where i don't remember what grade i was in but i remember they put me in like kindergarten level navajo class because i didn't know how to speak navajo you know um and so like i've navigated those spaces growing up in different areas where like most of the time I've always been the only one there but I think that's also helped me be successful in you know in teaching where it's like two percent black people in climbing where when we were doing the research and it was you know the AAC says I think it's one percent of all climbers are are black so like I think that's helped me be successful and that's one thing that I learned early on by you know living in these different places and moving around quite a bit. Oh, that's awesome. So, okay, let's flash forward. In college, I read that you were a decathlete. That's like a no-joke sport. I mean, you got to be the biggest badass to be a decathlete. Tell me a little bit about how you got into decathlon in college and maybe just for people who don't know, like, what is it? So the decathlon is an event in track and field where basically it's all the events. Um, you do 10 of them. You do five one day, five the next day. Um, it's not really not really a big event in high school but kind of when you go to the college level and olympic level that's it's it's pretty competitive and so i got into that basically when i graduated high school i was kind of done with sports and i went to university of colorado because i wanted to be near the mountains and be outside and you know college you move in you have all you meet all these new people i randomly met um my friend javin from hawaii he was a recruited decathlete and we were just chatting and I was like, oh, yeah, I did track in high school. And he was like, yeah, I'm doing track now. And we were talking about times and marks and whatnot. And he was like, wait, why aren't you doing track here? And I, you know, I told him, I was like, ah, you know, I just I wasn't cut out for college sports or whatnot. And anyways, he just kept being in my ear, being in my ear. He talked to his coach and one day they invited me out. And then um, basically after the first couple of days, she told me, you know, if you can hit these marks and you can do well all fall, then I'm going to give you a spot on the team because I want you to be here. So that was kind of kind of cool. And after that first season, actually, after the second season, I earned a scholarship. And that was kind of the end of the rest of my college career, basically. How did you transition from running decathlon to rock climbing? It's going back to my track career. Um, kind of when I was done, I was competing a little bit after I graduated. But I kind of was finding that for me personally, it was pretty hard to train by myself. And I live in Boulder, Colorado, where there's tons of rock climbers, mountain climbers, ice climbing everywhere. And I didn't really know much about it. So the first time I went climbing, a friend just asked me if I wanted to go climbing. And, and I was like, I have no gear. And somehow she figured out a way to get me gear. And we went outside to Dream Canyon, which is like right next to Boulder Canyon. And she was pretty experienced. So she led the route. And then I followed it. And then the next route, she like gave me the gear and was like, all right, it's your lead. And luckily, it was a pretty easy route and whatnot. But I kind of learned really quickly. 
I don't know. Once I did it once, I just wanted to keep doing it and really, really enjoyed it because I was still competing in track at that time. And what happens with track is like, okay, I was primarily pole vaulting. And so you jump 16 feet and then you jump 17 feet and then whatever. But it takes a long time to make those improvements, like very, very incremental improvements. Where climbing, it was like every single route you did was a success, right? Maybe you failed on one route, but then you try another one. It's like, okay, I did it. Whereas like track, I would go two years without having improved in a certain aspect or a certain event. And that's kind of where I got started. And I just kind of kept going with it. I mean, I've never even let it climb and I've like climbed for a long time. So that's really impressive. But it was either impressive or really stupid because I didn't really like, I didn't know any better. I was like, oh, okay, this is what you do. Eddie got a track and field scholarship for the last couple of years of school. He'd done a bunch of different track events in high school, so in many ways, decathlon was a perfect fit for him. It let him do a little bit of everything. After graduation from college, Eddie started working as a chemist, but he ended up transitioning to teaching high school and coaching track and field. Making the jump from being a chemist to a chemistry teacher is a pretty decent jump. Can you just tell us a little bit about your career and how you made that jump? Yeah. Um, I worked at a water treatment lab before I became a chemistry teacher. And so in that lab, I was responsible for doing, carrying out different analysis for the state and the EPA as well. And to be honest, it was a pretty good job. Like I got to do all the science that I learned in college. I got to go out a couple days a month and like go hike in the mountains and sample water, kind of where all our drinking water camp comes from. And so like putting all that stuff together, it was a really fun job. But with that said, kind of the first year I started working that job, um, my college coach actually reached out to me and put me in contact with this high school coach. And I talked to him and I was not really that interested in helping out. But he was saying, hey, we need a pole vault coach. Can you, you know, can you coach pole vault for us? And I was just like, no, nah, I'm kind of done with track. It's like, hey, well, we have these preseason practices. Can you just stop by? Just stop by. Just come by. Just see the kids. And he kind of tricked me because I came, I stopped by, I saw the kids and I was like, I was back every day after work helping out. And that's, you know, that's before the season even starts. Because high school kids are so fun. They are. And it's, it's really interesting. Like when you see these kids who find something they're passionate about and they just want to get better and they're hungry for knowledge, it's, it's awesome. And it's like, there's nothing like it. It sounds like you're a natural coach and a natural teacher. I had to work a lot to get better at it, I would say. But I mean, it was one of those things that I was so excited to do and kind of seeing what was happening to those kids year after year. It's what made me want to switch my career and take a pay cut and become a teacher because just working with those kids every day and like seeing the direct impact I could help, you know, getting them to college, helping them find this path where they can be successful has been something that's been awesome for me. What was it like to transition into teaching chemistry? I assume you had to get a teaching license. It was a slow process because my first year of the chemist was that year that, you know, I went through the season with a couple kids and and just saw them go from one place in their life to their next place in life to going to college and they never even like imagined going to college. And so at that time I was undecided and I had told myself, you know, if I'm feeling the same way after the next season, I'm gonna start getting my teacher license. So I kinda, you know, put that on the back burner and next season comes up and I'm like, man, I still, you know, I want to work with these kids full time. I'm seeing what the other coaches are doing where they're having them in the classroom and after school. I want to be able to do that as well. So 
I kind of just like slowly, that idea just brewed and I slowly um, put things into place in my life for that to happen. Then I actually met my wife and my wife is a teacher. And this it was like, as I was applying to teaching grad schools, um, I had met her and chatted with her and just kind of through that process, like she's a teacher and starting to look at our schedules. I was like, oh man, this would work out really well. And so not only am I doing something that I find more rewarding, I was also doing something where it's like we would have optimal time off together. Eddie and his wife have used their vacation time to ski down Denali and climb down Mount Kenya. He's even summited Akangawa, which is the highest mountain in the Americas. For the last 10 years, Eddie has spent a lot of time gaining skills and experience as a climber, which made him a perfect candidate to join the Full Circle Everest expedition. When we come back, Eddie tells us about the logistics of their expedition, his teammates, what gear he's carrying, and so much more. Eddie committed to joining the Full Circle Everest expedition years ago, and the trip has been in the planning stages since before the COVID-19 pandemic. But this past summer, the team decided to step on the gas and make it happen. Before booking outfitters and guides, they needed to figure out how to pay for it. Climbing Everest comes with a hefty price tag. Eddie and his teammates decided to launch a GoFundMe to raise funds, and the response from the community was incredible. People were excited to see the first all-black team climb the biggest mountain in the world. From there, brands started offering support too. At the time of this conversation with Eddie, they've reached 85% of their fundraising goal. With the majority of the money raised, the team was able to start finalizing plans and making reservations for their journey up the world's tallest peak. Okay, so... What are the logistics of this trip? When do you guys plan to leave? Who's going? How long are you planning to go for? So we're planning, the actual expedition is going to start around April 1st, and we're heading to Nepal for about two months. Two um, months? Yeah, it's a long, it's longer than any trip I've ever taken. It's a pretty long expedition, but um, in terms of to acclimatize to above 8,000 meters, you have to take that time where you're going up to camps and you're going down to camps and even just flying into Lukla, there's not really a road system to base camp. So you're hiking from that town that you fly into all the way up to through the valley, through the Kumbu, and then up to base camp. Who's going to go with you on this trip? So going back to when I was chatting with Phil about why this is important, um, you know, he wanted to make sure that he was putting together not just an all black team, right? But a team of people who could be successful on the mountain and who have experience and who should be there and deserve an opportunity, but may have not had that opportunity. And I think that's that's a bit different than kind of what happens in sometimes in some of these spaces where, you know, they're looking to just put a black person there or a person of color there or even a woman there just to put someone there. Phil was really, really trying to build this team from the perspective of like these people deserve to be there. And there's 11 of us on the team, um, nine of us who are looking to climb the mountain and two folks who are kind of helping support. Awesome. Yeah. And all different backgrounds or yeah, a lot of them? Everyone comes from a completely different background. There's, there's men on the team. There's women on the team. Um, there's a whole variety of different ages. 
um, from I think Manoa is the youngest in his mid twenties to um, some folks almost near 60. So it's kind of a big variety. Um, I'm a teacher, three folks in the team have PhDs. Um, a few folks are business owners. So, and then a couple are professional athletes. So it's kind of a whole gamut of different folks, which is kind of cool. Can you just explain why it's so expensive for people who just don't know? So there's not only just the permits for Everest. Like if you're just going to base camp, it's not even close to as expensive, but there's a really high permit cost to go to the summit. Also, there's flights. Um, if you ever looked at flights to Asia for 10 people, um, it adds up pretty quickly. And then we talked about gear a little bit. There's a ton of gear that you need for Everest, right? You need specialized boots and you're not going to wear those boots from the airport all the way up to the summit. So you're going to have another pair of shoes. You use two sleeping bags because so the Everest route, there's base camp and then there's the ice fall. And the ice fall is the most dangerous part of Everest. But because that ice fall is such a hazard, you have, like you have basically your sleeping bag below the ice fall and you have a sleeping bag above the ice fall so that you don't have to carry all that weight back and forth through the ice fall when that's the most dangerous aspect of the trip. And then there's camp one, two, three, four on the summit. And so you do rotations where you start at base camp, you go through the ice fall, and then you go basically your summit for that rotation is camp one. And then you go back down and then maybe you'll do it for camp three where you kind of stop at those camps along the way and acclimatize. And you'll stay there for a few nights and then go back down and then go back up and then go back down. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to do that for the altitude. So you're not taking oxygen with you. We are taking oxygen, but even if you do take oxygen, you don't start that till camp three or four. Wow. Okay. So you do have to acclimatize quite a bit. You know, you don't want to like go from sea level and just put your oxygen tank up and because even the pressure is different. It's not just the amount of oxygen. It's also the pressure. So going back to what you were saying in terms of cost, right? Like you have all that gear to bring over. So even, you know, 10 flights, all that gear, there's no way that's going to fit in two duffels. So you have the luggage costs as well. Um, but then beyond just the permit fees, you have your outfitters. Your outfitters are, you know, people who kind of help you out with logistics there. In general, you can't just show up to Everest and climb Everest. I think people have climbed it in the past Alpine style, but very, very few and far between. So every year that ice fall area is different. They have to put ladders across the crevasses. They fix the ropes and that's what the Sherpa team does. And so your outfitter has, has folks on, on that team that are helping fix the routes for the season. And so that's kind of like all kind of goes into the cost of Everest and why it ends up being so, so massive. So you're going to need a ton of gear for this trip. Are there any pieces of gear you're really excited about? Yeah, there's a lot of gear. And so like, I mean, I could, t- I could go down the list of, of different things we're, we're using, but um, well, North Face is our main sponsor. And so they're, they're providing us with apparel. And that was something that we, we worked out early on. And so we don't really have a choice in those things, but I mean, they, they make the best for big mountains, you know, but things when it, that we did have a choice in, um, were, uh, boots. And so like, I've, I've worked with Scarpa a little bit here and there and Scarpa makes like ridiculously good ice climbing boots. You know, when you go from a boot that's meant for like ice climbing in Colorado to a boot that's meant for climbing Everest, usually they're a lot bulkier. But they, you know, they did, they did something to it that they'll actually be, they can climb just as well as like, you know, a really light boot. So that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, we're using whippets from Black Diamond, you know, versus the traditional ice axe on the whole mountain, because those things are amazing. Like it's a hiking pole with an ice axe on top of it. 
And so for skiing, they're amazing. And even for hiking for things that are, you know, moderately technical where you need a ice axe to self-arrest, but you might not need, like you're not climbing with it. Like it's amazing. Earlier, you mentioned the danger factor of this trip. You've climbed some pretty gnarly rock faces and mountains. What makes Everest more dangerous than other climbs you've done? When you're rock climbing and ice climbing, unless you're like, I know you said you interviewed Alex Honnold, unless you're pre-soloing, there's always systems in place to keep you safe, right? Like there's, you know, you're attached to a rope, you're clipping gear, the rope sometimes above you, like that's when you're top roping. And there's always these systems to keep you safe. Occasionally things happen, like there's like rock fall or a hiker just throws a rock off the edge of the cliff or... Um, you know, something like that happens, but that's very, very uncommon. And so, you know, in general, I feel pretty safe rock climbing. Um, and like injury, and most of the accidents happen from mistakes, like human made errors, right? Like you were up really late and you forgot to clip in or something like that, or you repelled off the end of your rope because you forgot to tie a knot. Um, that's where like the big accidents happen, but you're, there's a lot of control about that happening. Um, when you go to Everest, it's different. So, I mean, I know there was a big disaster a couple years ago where there was an earthquake and like an avalanche went almost into base camp. And that's something you can't control. And then going through the ice fall, basically there's, there's some rocks and some over, overhanging hazards where it's really just, they're going to come down at some point and you don't know when it is. Like you can do things like, you know, you can try to get through the ice fall faster. Um, they make a course, they make a, not a course, but they put the trail on a side of it that is a little bit safer. But at the end of the day, that's a objective hazard that you can't, you can't control. And that's where I keep saying, like, there's a danger aspect of Everest because that objective hazard is probably a bit higher than, you know, what we'd say in climbing. But I mean, people accept risk at any part of their life, right? Like, you know, we look at, how dangerous a car accident is and it's pretty high the rate you know the rates of fatalities in cars are pretty high but with that said that's a pretty acceptable risk for everyone and so i think it's just like comparing that level of risk and that level of danger is kind of where that comes into on everest where it's just you know yes there's things you can do to mess up but there's the things that you can't control which makes it scary There are a lot of risks that are outside of the team's control, but Eddie's doing his best to prepare, not just financially, but also physically and mentally. Even though he's climbed a lot of difficult peaks over the past decade, Everest presents new terrain and challenges that Eddie has never encountered before. As a former collegiate athlete, he's pretty sick of formal training plans, so he's found a way to train that works for him. Okay, so you leave in April, What are you doing to train or prepare? So I haven't done a lot of specific training leading up to now. I've been climbing a lot. Like I I go climbing every day before work, either at the gym. Before work? Yeah. How early are you climbing? Um, it depends. So usually I'm out the house or I'm there by six. And so I got like a window between six and eight AM and then uh at the gym. Uh it depends. So kind of up until daylight savings time, I typically go to El Dorado Canyon. It's like 15 minutes away from my house. It's a really pretty park and there's lots of good rock climbs. And then as daylight savings time and like at six o'clock, you know, in October, it's not light out anymore and it's kind of cold. So then I kind of transition to the gym. And so that's just getting all that volumes, 
something that's important to me. And then me and Anna are out on the weekends going here or there. Um, and then like over Thanksgiving, um, we went to Mexico and climbed Orizaba and did a little bit of rock climbing, but we really mostly just ate tacos. But yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing for training because in terms of like when you go rock climbing, you carry a heavy pack to the base. It's cardio intensive. You're, you know, doing those strength things. And then my my thought is kind of as I've been building that pretty high base, that's not necessarily specific to what I'm doing on Everest. But for me, when I do the same thing over and over and over again, I tend to kind of get burnt out. And so I've been doing that. And now I'm kind of ready to transition into more skiing and more um, like I just actually signed up for a ski race mid-March, uh, like an uphill, uphill, downhill, like a backcountry ski race where you're you're going up and you're going down and you cover like 20 miles and 10,000 vert. And so I just signed up for that. Not that I'm a big competitive person anymore, but just so I could have like a intermediate goal before I get to Everest. Sounds like you're really methodical about these like little goals, but you also make them really fun along the way. That's what I hope to do. I mean, I going back to decathlon, I really was appreciative of that part of my life. But also, like in terms of that very formalized training that I was doing, I got a little burnt out. I mean, I was in the weight room four days a week. We were, you know, running five, six days a week, depending on the the time of year. And so that formalized training where it was just like tracking yourself and pushing yourself, it was awesome. But now like going to these outdoor sports, it's like you always do them with people. You always do them in different places and you see all these different places. And so that's kind of where I, I still take that structure, the little bit of structure I had, but I put it into a whole different realm. Everest, though, is coming up. I imagine that your training is going to get a little bit more regimented. Do you guys have like a schedule? Is someone sending you guys a training plan to start come 2022? Um, no one's sending us a training plan. We just kind of everyone. I mean, everyone is pretty skilled athletes, I'd say, on the team. And so like basically our goal is to shoot for can we hike 12,000 feet of vert in a week? Because that's what summit week looks like. So for me, like I typically like I was kind of going back and looking at what I've done over the past six months. And I normally do about eight to 10,000 a week just based on the climb and other things I do. So it's ramping that up, I think, just a little bit, as well as getting comfortable carrying a heavy pack, because I do that a little bit, but I don't do that as much as I'm going to have to do it. And so basically... Phil does a pretty good job of knowing that everyone else, is, everyone on the team is really experienced and knows how to train for these larger things and just says, hey, look, this is what you need to get to. 12,000 feet a week. If you can do that, um, I feel pretty confident. What about the mental part? That's a whole other thing. <laughs> Talk to me about it because I'm I'm always interested in, I mean, climbing a mountain is like the ultimate metaphor of life, but like how does one prepare mentally to do something that they've never done? Like there's a lot of things you can do to simulate that part. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can do. And I think a lot of people approach it differently. And um, like we just talked about the physical part of the training. And then there's a whole altitude component that's separate from this. But then I think the mental, um, for each person, it's different. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, you're out, you're out for an extended amount of time. You're tired. You're making decisions when you're tired. And you're learning to push yourself there. And mentally, that can be pretty draining. And so that's something that I do I don't want to say regularly, but like in terms of like, you know, being on Denali and skiing from the top, I was like, I had to carry my skis. We started at a lower camp to summit. Um, so like I've had that experience there. And so like doing those things that we know how to do and just telling ourselves like, okay, we know how to do this. We're just going to, we're just going to keep doing it. And so I think just 
you can't simulate the exact thing always, but you, you can simulate being out for hours and hours. The mental and physical challenges aren't the only factors weighing on the climbers. With such public support and because of the historical nature of their trip, the group feels a sense of responsibility. That's part of the reason the Full Circle Expedition is producing a documentary about their attempted ascent. They're also collaborating with Microsoft to create virtual field trips for students across the country. Climbing Everest is no small feat, but doing it in the public eye adds an extra layer of pressure. For Eddie, there are also a few personal objectives that he's carrying with him as he climbs. What are you hoping to get from the experience, personally? I've kind of gotten a lot already from the experience, I'll say, in terms of like all these connections I've made in, in the uh, outdoor industry, in terms of just getting to meet this team. Because, I mean, to be honest, before really last year, I hadn't climbed with a single Black person besides my sister. And so kind of getting to know this this team of other Black people in America who have very similar experiences to me has been incredibly rewarding. That's awesome. Is there anything you're looking for to do most about it? I, I'm really excited for the trip and I think like it's all going to be good. And I think it's all like, I'm not, I've never been someone to, to be like, Oh man, I need to be at the summit. Like that's the only thing I care about. Like, I feel like, I mean, through the whole, through the past like year, I feel like I've almost got a, another degree in marketing I've learned to connect with people. I've learned to I've learned how to use social media more effectively and and uh, work with different companies and work with different groups. So it's been like I feel like I've learned quite a bit over the past year, and I'm excited to just kind of keep learning as we go through this process. So Everest has an allure unlike any other mountain. It's like the most well-known mountain for people to climb. What do you think of Everest? I think it's a it's a challenging mountain and it's a different challenge than I've ever ever faced, right? Like my my high point is around 7000 meters on in Aconcagua, whereas Everest is significantly higher, significantly longer expedition. And I know, you know, there's a big debate about Everest isn't very technical, but I think that's pushing yourself in a different way. Eddie and the Full Circle team will be making history as the first all-black climbing team to summit the world's tallest mountain. Eddie, thank you so much for coming on Wild Ideas Worth Living. I bet your high school students are so proud of you and they're so lucky to be in your class. We'll all be thinking of you and following along with your trek. If you want to learn more about the Full Circle Everest Expedition, check out their Instagram at Full Circle Everest. You can also visit their website at fullcircleeverest.com. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we appreciate when you follow this show, rate it, and take the time to write a review wherever you listen We read every single one of your reviews. They mean a ton. Remember, wherever you are, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.